We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I think expectations are a super important thing in anything that you really do or experience. And everything you have is just comparing one state to another. And in the 73-9 season, I never expected any of that. I've never had that much fun watching a sports team. It's June 2016, Cavaliers at Warriors. This is Remember That Game, the podcast about sporting events that take you on a journey and maybe chart the path of the zeitgeist. I'm your host, Thomas Emmerich, and my guest is Split Ticket co-founder Lakshya Jain, whose election modeling and analysis outfit nailed the 2023 cycle. They also put on some great Tuesday night programming each November, along with primaries, specials, runoffs in between. I'm swinging by to see if they got a stream going on YouTube or Spaces. Now, this would never conflict with an NBA Finals Game 7. That's Sunday primetime. Like this one in Oakland, California, as Lakshia's Warriors just try to hang on after losing a 3-1 series lead. Lakshia, were you taking in any live analysis from the broadcast, friends and family, or did you prefer dead silence and consulting the pit of your stomach as to how this would all play out? You know, a lot of the time, I only turn on the broadcast so that I can understand what the referees might be debating on or what the calls might be. But I don't generally like paying attention to broadcast for tactics as much. Um, I used to, but I feel like generally speaking, you have to find very select few broadcasters that really know how to analyze the game because increasingly, I feel like there's a lot of broadcasters who just get by because they're good at talking. Throughout the year, uh, Split Ticket dropped some great pieces splashing the discourse on everything from candidate wins above replacement to the predictive value of special elections. The way the Warriors changed the league last decade by putting more weight on three-pointers, less on post-up scoring. How mind-expanding was that for you as they changed the mental model people had for winning basketball? I think it's interesting because if you ask anyone about the potential innovations that can be made in a field, a lot of them will actually be fairly off base in a lot of ways and not see the next big thing coming. I mean, I work as an AI engineer and no one would have really seen the language models of the next big thing um, in you know 2014. Um, in the same way, I think in basketball, a lot of people did not necessarily put together the fact that 
what was coming in the league was a three-point revolution. I remember, so I've been watching the Warriors since Mark Jackson's first season in 2010. And I remember, I mean, I actually started watching them a little bit before then. I remember when Steph Curry was benched for AC Law. I remember when we had Monta Ellis and Ellis was talking about how they can't win with two little guys on the same team. And he meant that Steph is going to be traded. And the Warriors ownership was like, yeah, we can't win with two little guys in the same team. See you, Monta. <laughs> so I, I think there's throughout that time, what I've seen is that it's a copycat league. You see the best guys and um, you just try to instantly copy them. But part of what makes them so revolutionary is that no one could see the change that they introduced coming. Because if they did, they would have done it first. And it's not like the NBA was, yes, the NBA was trending towards more skill, et cetera, but not to that degree of acceleration. No one really thought that you could start a five that was as small as what the Warriors put up in their 73-9 season. And all of a sudden, you look and Iguodala is playing at, and Draymond Green is the starting center at six foot. He says he's 6'9", but I don't even know if he's that tall. Plays big uh, when he's covering the five. Golden State uh, wins Cavs Warriors part one in 2015. They're down in the series. And Coach Kerr tags Iguodala in for Bogut, gets Draymond over to the five in their death lineup. Kerr having seen Boris Diaw helping beat LeBron in the heat the year prior. Golden State rallies, wins the 2015 finals, and positionless basketball sparks a 24-0 and start to 2016. Uh, what's it been like as a Warriors fan to watch Kerr and the organization make adjustments? When I started watching Jackson with the Warriors, when he was the head coach, I noticed that he was always, you know, the guy at the front of everything, taking credit for basically everything the team did. Anything bad that happened, it seemed like the players were getting blamed. Anything good that happened, it was Mark Jackson and his strength of personality. What I like, but I never really saw the tactical adjustments that Jackson made that were on par with what Kerr did because they weren't. When I when I saw you know, I've seen a lot of pathetic Warriors basketball. <laughs> the first year, I think they were 30-50 that I started watching them, 31-51 um, or something like that. And what came to my mind was that the team clearly had a lot of talent. You didn't need to be a savant to know that Steph Curry was a good player. But it always felt like they were trying to play like the Lakers on the court. And if you try to play like the Lakers on the court, you will lose to the Lakers on the court because you just don't have the players to play that scheme. And what was interesting about Kerr is, you know, I'd seen his broadcasts on TNT and his clips and whatnot. And what I found interesting was he was willing to rip up the manual to go to something new and kind of empower his own stars. And that was one side of it. That was the hard data side, if you will, the tactical side. And then the, the, the soft side, the skill side, where he kind of said, yeah, like Steph is an amazing player. I don't need to hold him and Clay Thompson back. Let me just let them run with it along with Draymond Green, et cetera. I mean, it's part of why I think coaches like Steve Kerr are the ones that hit it big because they're able to kind of blend a very good personality management set with great tactical insight. No insight is good if you can't get your players to buy into it. That's just my point of view. And what's been most impressive about Kerr, coming back to your question, is that he comes up with these new interesting schemes like going 
like with such a small lineup or, you know, expanding the floor so much to where you let Steph shoot a 40.3 because he can do it because he's Steph Curry or, you know, encouraging your bigger men to shoot more. I mean, that's something that used to be only kind of reserved for LeBron, et cetera. Kerr was instrumental in kind of encouraging people to do that, but you can't, you can tell people all you want, but ultimately they're the ones who have to execute the decisions. And what I repeatedly see in basically any field is unless you're good at communicating what your strategies actually are and what your insights are, it doesn't matter because no one's going to listen to you. It seems like they buy in in 2016 after dropping 110 a game way ahead of the pack uh, the year before, go up to 114 a game, um, which in the 2010s was... Uh, it was insane. <laughs> yeah, insane at that point. And then you know they break the, the record for threes and wins that year. Early Kerr adjustments lead to a lot of success. I've been following uh, your work since the 2021 Virginia gubernatorial and split ticket analysis in 2022 and 2023 cycles. Have there been any calibrations off of learning from those elections that helped in performing so well in uh, 2023 in Virginia and your analysis of other states? I think, well, thank you for the kind words, but I, I think the biggest thing that we've learned is that it's very easy to get data to say what you want it to say before the event happens um and if you're not careful about how you kind of approach the data with your own biases you'll find yourself getting led on a very very weird track i think 2022 was interesting because i wasn't seeing any data to support a big red wave um but I was seeing a lot of indicators that this thing might be actually pretty close. In 21, by contrast, there was a lot of data that supported the Democrats were going to do badly. Um, if you look at the special election results, they were consistently swinging a fair amount to the right. I mean, they were, I think they were about six points to the right of what they were um, in the, um, you know, the 2020 cycle, right? Like, we were seeing like a six point environmental shift to the right. Um, and then you were seeing that like Youngkin outspent McAuliffe in the Virginia race. And all of those things would have pointed to a very close election that all things said and done probably would have tilted a little bit to the Republicans. And we didn't necessarily look at it that way. This is before split ticket was made, but I didn't look at it that way because I was kind of like, eh, polarization's kicked in so much. At the end of the day, like Dems aren't going to lose that much in turnout, so they'll probably be fine. Well, newsflash, they did. Um, minority turnout wasn't great at all, um, and they're not. And even then, they lost a lot among persuadable independents. That's why Youngkin ended up beating McAuliffe. And I think looking back on that cycle, I ignored some very clear indicators in favor of my own pre-baked theories. And into 22, before Dobbs, I had the same types of theories, just in the opposite direction. I thought the independents were going to break against Democrats. I thought that they were in for a bloodbath. And, you know, to be fair, you could have made that case before Dobbs. It's very possible. But once Dobbs hit and we started seeing the special elections come in, I started to think, okay, maybe 
it's worth stepping back and thinking about whether our priors should also change. There were a lot of columns, if you may remember, being written about how Republicans were still poised to win, how Dobbs would probably help the Republicans because um, of some convoluted reason here or there. Um, you'll probably have to ask the magazines who published that about why they thought that. But um, And so a lot of people's priors didn't move. And I was just thinking, I'm like, okay, None of us are as good at this as we think we are. And if there's a lot of elections happening that consistently see a swing to the left that isn't based on turnout or not visibly based on turnout, what are we supposed to infer from that? Like, are Democrats potentially in a better position than we thought? And it's just that no one's immune from this, but that process of um, trying to detach your priors from your analysis is I think a pretty important thing because sometimes it forces you to just reconsider the entire picture. That's what we try to do. The Thunder end up giving the Warriors some trouble in the Western Conference Finals. That's kind of viewed as part of a champion stuff while Cleveland's skate to the finals is viewed as a cakewalk. They end up being underdogs going into the finals. Playoff net rating, 11-point edge to Cleveland's big three of LeBron, Kyrie, and Love compared to Steph, Clay, and Draymond. You went into a little bit of a Vibesverse data, Punder Trevers polling, that dichotomy. 22 midterms impacted the way you observed that interplay? Yeah, I, w- I would say so. Um, I want to touch back on the Thunder point a little bit because I find this really interesting. So you mentioned the heart of the champion stuff, right? Um, that narrative type of thing where, oh, they came back from 3-1 down. There is actually evidence to suggest that playoff games played correlate to a team's success. Like like the number of playoff games played by the squad, by the roster, correlate to success in the postseason. It's not all just made up, but it is significantly overvalued. I do agree with that a lot. And I think if I was looking back at that, though, I mean, yes, I, I get the point that like, yeah, there's a lot of narratives out there, et cetera, et cetera. But at some point, like I'm still hung up on this because I can't get over the fact that a team that dominant lost. Yes, there were warning signs for the Warriors. Yes, the Cavs are better than it expected than expected. And yes, their schedule wasn't as big of a cakewalk as you think. But at the end of the day, the Cavs winning was still an underdog event that I think what we really need to reckon with is the fact that if somebody has a 70% chance of winning 30% of the time, they will lose. And that's just what happens, but we're not good at calibrating that 30% mentally. And so it comes as a shock. And I think that's also what happened in the midterms. Cavs plus 180 to win the title before the series 11 to one after they went down three, one that's implied odds of just 8% for Cleveland heading into game five, like uh, before and after you learned Graymon was going to be out for too many uh, groin swings for the NBA's taste. I'm used to Draymond being out now, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> this one wasn't to the face. Um, yeah, I guess everyone, maybe it's subjective, which one you'd rather have if you're receiving it. But uh, uh <laughs> This exercise and being without Draymond, uh, what, what was your perspective as far as changing the alchemy of the series? Draymond being suspended was, I think that was that was peak Draymond Green. Like he was and still is a bit of an idiot, but he's also an all-timer of a player. Like 
there's a reason that the Warriors have won four championships, and it's not just Steph and Clay. Like there is a very clear, important other component. I obviously think if Draymond wasn't suspended, the Warriors probably win that series. It's very they, the Warriors had to change schemes in Game Five because Draymond was gone, and when you have three shots to win a series and you take out your one of your best players, the person key to your defensive schemes, the person who's on tap for, you know, marking some of the most important players in the NBA, and you take him out of a final, you're asking the rest of the squad to adapt to a circumstance they had rarely ever seen for a full game in the biggest circumstances of their lives. I mean, I think it just rattled the Warriors, right? Like you'd kind of expect it. And that's partly why they fell away down the stretch. Like in the third quarter, I think, as I remember when the third quarter started, the Cavs just came out and blew the Warriors away. And it's just that thing that if you give it enough time, quality begins to show through. And the Warriors just did not have that quality to hang at the NBA finals if you take out one of their best players. Yeah, I mean, Draymond ends up having an underrated great game seven as as we get up to that one. Going into game five, I thought we were going to lose. I, I didn't think we were going to win that one. I thought Draymond was out. We're just going to take an L here. It's okay. We'll win game six. This is too good of a squad to lose three in a row to the Cavs. That was my thought. We are fast approaching the holiday season. We're always looking for the perfect gifts for those near and dear to us, our families and friends. And what could be better than a ticket to a live event? We're heading towards the crucial weeks of the NFL season and there's so much sports going on, but there's also concerts, comedy, theater, so many other things that you can go and get a ticket to this time of year. Can be stressful looking for tickets, getting the best price, the best seats, trying to figure everything out to have the best experience. But it doesn't have to be like that because buying tickets to your favorite events shouldn't be stressful game time is a fast and easy way to get tickets for all the sports music comedy and theater near you with killer deals on last minute tickets and their best price guarantee you can stop stressing over the tickets and start getting hyped for all the fun you will have they have exclusive flash deals they have the game time guarantee which means you'll always get the best price if you find a ticket in the same section and row for less game time will credit you 110 percent of the difference buying tickets in a matter of seconds two taps on their app and your set so whether it's for a gift or whether it's just to treat yourself this holiday season snag tickets without the stress with game time download the game time app create an account use the code rotoviz for 20 dollars off your first purchase terms apply again create an account redeem the code rotoviz for 20 dollars off download game time today last minute tickets lowest price guaranteed L's in game five and six. Next thing you know, the implied odds have gone from 8% to 21% to right around pre-series 35% heading into game seven. Do you think election models tend to capture uncertainty better or worse than sports betting markets? And would a New York Times needle for the series have made you physically ill? Well, there was kind of a New York Times needle, right? Except it was the 538 probability scores. Oh, yeah. But... No, I, I think election models do a significantly worse job at communicating uncertainty. I think they capture uncertainty actually very well. But where election people struggle, I think, is in communications. The thing with sports and the thing with sports broadcasters and sports analysts is that a lot of these people are surprisingly normal. <laughs> and I, I say that because, look, like election modeling is done by like, a bunch of nerds usually me included who are 
very experienced with working with data and whatnot, but when it comes time to communicate your ideas to a broader audience, there are certain skills and certain things that are required that a lot of people don't have practice with, or because you don't talk to as many quote unquote regular people in your profession or, you know, like, like in the course of doing your job or just in your profession in general, what ends up happening is you start listening to everyone else in your orbit without necessarily thinking about how an average person might view these things. So you start to communicate optimized for your peers rather than for the general public. In sports and in sports analysis and sports writing, you're always writing for the general public. You're not necessarily, see unless you're a player, you're not necessarily seeking accolades from the top of the top. If you are, then you're probably being insufferable on national television because you're trying to audition for a head coach job and you're not doing it very well. And I think this is where sports modeling and just sports analysis in general actually exceeds election analysis. Yes, there's a lot of morons and yes, the bar is lower in sports analysis. But what I find really fascinating about it is that sports modeling, sports, you know, sports odds and um, the types of things that I see regarding like, you know, like probabilities of winning and whatnot, these are much more clearly communicated in athletics than they are in elections. In elections, the models do a very good job in capturing uncertainty. I would say about as good as, there's always room for improvement, but it's very good compared to the sample size that we have because elections really happen once every year or two. And then you have to kind of use a very big data set collected every two years to predict the next two. And people are very noisy and circumstances and situations change. So what can you really do? Sports, it's much easier to model because you have games every single day. and Despite that, elections do a surprisingly remarkably good job at predicting who's going to win or et cetera. What they do a horrible job at is telling people how likely an upset is. Hmm. I think this is the biggest problem facing elections in general, which is that experts do not know how to communicate to the general public, whereas sports analysts and sports experts usually do. Going into game seven, I think yeah, everyone at the Oracle decently better appetite for uncertainty than a lot of people following uh, various elections where yeah, someone might technically be a two coin flips out of three or three coin flips out of four chance of potential upset and then recriminations afterwards with the prognosticators. So we, we start off game seven, tough jumper from J.R. Smith, gather the rebound. Harrison Barnes drills a three early oh. on after struggling throughout the series, he drills an early theory to give them the lead. Uh, they would end up replacing him with Kevin Durant in the offseason. Do you think that that warps in any way the the view of how well he did play while he was with the Warriors? No, no. I think Harrison Barnes was good for the Warriors overall. He had a horrible series in the finals. The upgrade was obviously good. Like No one's going to say that replacing Harrison Barnes with KD is bad, but I think Harrison Barnes gets a fair amount of respect for his contributions. He was important in the 2014-15 run. He was important in 15-16 to to get them where they were, but at the end of the day, Harrison Barnes is a good role player on a very good team. And the thing with these guys is that when they're what you pay them for and what you hope is that they don't get in your way, that they just do the job that they're supposed to do do it slightly better than the other team's role players and really facilitate your stars. 
it's the same thing in soccer. It's the same thing in basketball, right? Like you want these guys and in football as well. You want these guys to, they're not there to be the stars. They're there to facilitate the success of the stars. What Harrison Barnes, I think the problem with Harrison Barnes is that he had the worst series he could possibly have at the worst possible time. And that's exactly when you want your stars to be in the best possible position. I think it's completely understandable that Warriors fans were upset at him. I think over time that's faded and I think they're eventually, you know, fine with him again. Like, I don't think that many of them now are annoyed at him, at least from the sentiments I see. But yeah, I mean, this is the type of thing where people kind of tell me like, oh, you know, he had one bad series. What are people mad about in the moment? And I'm like, well, your job is, is literally building up to that one specific moment. If you can't execute it, then, you know, obviously people are going to be upset. It's kind of like, I'm going to bring in a politics analogy here if I can. Yeah. It's kind of like um, when people say, you know, oh, well, Hillary Clinton really ran a good campaign, but she lost. Like she won the popular vote by two points, but she lost in 2016. And I say, what are you defining this by good campaign? Like, what are you saying? Okay. You might not like Donald Trump. I mean, goodness knows I don't, but at the end of the day, you're supposed to win. There's no points for losing in decisions like these. There's no second place trophy that anyone cares about. It's about winning. And if you fail to win, people are rightfully going to hold you accountable for the consequences of that. I think it's just kind of that train of thought. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You seem like you're probably at cruising altitude, Warriors maintaining a steady lead, and then Cavs take over in the second half. The final six and a half minutes really breezes by. Starts off with a 7-0 run by the Warriors to go up 87-83. And Curry has subbed out Harrison Barnes, has Festus Azelian 
Cavs say, okay, we'll switch, and he'll guard LeBron the perimeter. Next thing you know, Cavs up 89-87. What's your panic level at this moment, or how are you dealing with these nerves? You know, at that point, I still thought the Warriors were going to win. I really, it's hard for me to state, to emphasize how shocked I was when it all ended up going down. I only started to realize the Warriors were going to lose when it was 93-89. That was the point at which I was like, oh my God, they're not coming. Because you got to remember, like the entire year, we'd seen insane stuff from Steph Curry when the chips are down. That OKC buzzer beater um, from 45 feet out with, you know, 0.4 seconds left. And that's the type of stuff he did on the daily. And for me, I just kind of felt like, okay, I've seen this so many times. They're going to come back and they're going to win. It's on home court, game seven. And I mean, I wasn't panicked until there were six seconds to go. And I realized, oh my goodness, they're actually going to lose this game. You have a long scoring drought tied up at 89. And before what became known as the block, they had missed some opportunities. Shooting went a little dry. Yeah, you said you're expecting to win till the 93-89. Must have been pretty shocking for the Warriors, the team that lived on the three all year and the previous year to a title, were all, were suddenly dying by the three. Yeah, it's. It, I mean, these are the types of things that. So I don't know if you watch much baseball, um, but there was that thing in Moneyball. Do you remember when Billy Bean actually was talking about how his team over the course of 162 games could easily become the best team in the league or somewhat close to it because they had they knew that it was a probabilities game and over a long enough period of time with big enough sample size things level out and you generally succeed but in a small series where the variance is you know dialed up like a five game series it's a bit more of a crapshoot and that's kind of like how it was with the three-pointer for the warriors right like you go cold at the wrong time and it's just it's tough because threes are inherently lower probabilities events. And um, there's not a person in the world who would say, if you need to make a three versus need to make a two to win the game, you'd rather make the three because it's a lower percentage shot. But the point behind shooting the three ball isn't that you'd rather shoot a three to win the game. It's that by shooting enough of the three ball at optimal points, you get to a high enough lead to where you don't need to do any of that to win the game. And I think, like, honestly, just the Warriors shooting touch deserting them at the worst possible time, it sucked. But I don't think that team could have made it to the finals playing any other way. It's just kind of of how – it's kind of a risk you accept that sometimes you're just going to get these roles and they got one at the worst possible time. But it's not – it's not a losing strategy. It's just, it's just something where sometimes you'll get a bad roll of the dice, but in the long run, you expect to win. I mean, there is a reason this team won, even without KD, two championships. Yeah. They went three or four that decade, and then they, they come back after the pandemic and win one. I think it was at 22. And Cavaliers had three all-NBA players and great defensive plays as well. LeBron with the block on Iguodala. Kevin Love with one of the most astonishing defensive one-on-one possessions on Steph Curry there. Kyrie Irving, go-ahead jumper. And then those big three, they call timeout and they drop a play on offense where it's Kyrie to the rim. Draymond has to help. Iggy has to rotate because you got Kevin Love in the corner. Dishes to LeBron going to the hoop. 
And that foul creates the free throw that puts them up four. It seems like this Cleveland team just kind of put an extraordinary effort as well with talented players. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's that team was very, very good. It was it was a very strong team. I, I actually think that, you know, Steph was fully healthy in 2016. I still think the Warriors would have won. But I also think that if the Cavs are fully healthy in 2015, they probably would have won that series. So it's it, people people understate how good the Cavs were because a lot of focus gets put on like, you know, the Warriors blowing a 3-1 lead or, um, you know, Warriors winning the first series because half the Cavs roster was injured or whatever. But like, you can only play with what's in front of you. And the Cavaliers were objectively an incredibly strong team by any metric. I mean, they were probably one of the stronger NBA champions in history. In the moments after that loss, could you imagine within a year that the Warriors would smoke the Cavs in a run of two straight finals where they go eight and one? No, but you know, I didn't have nearly as much fun watching those two Warriors teams as I did watching the first iteration of the championship and the 73 and nine team. Ultimately, like if you ask me to relive a season again, I will probably pick first 2014 to 15 and then 2015 to 16, even though the Warriors lost that year before I pick any of the KD years. And it's not that I'm not grateful for a KD championship. It's that I think, I think expectations are a super important thing in anything that you really do or experience and everything you have is just comparing one state to another and in the 73-9 season i never expected any of that i've never had that much fun watching a sports team maybe i was just wasn't that upset because the warriors won one the year before actually that is the reason i wasn't that upset because i never thought i'd see a warriors championship in my lifetime suddenly i've seen one the year before i never thought we'd get two but i had so much fun watching that team that even though I couldn't, even though if you asked me, like, would you take an eight and one run in the finals the next two years to win the championship if you lost this one? I'd have said yes in the moment. Looking back on it, like, to me, what means the most is watching that team every single day with my friends when I was in college and just marveling at the insane stuff that was going on time and time again. And I think, like, that's the type of thing, like, expectations, like, even in politics. Comparison against expectation sets the narrative more than the performance itself. It's why, you know, in 2020, Democrats objectively had a very good 2020. They took control of all three chambers of, of government, um, really like the House, the Senate, the presidency. They had a trifecta. And everyone somehow talked like the Republicans were the ones that came out of it winning. Then in 22, the Democrats lost the House, but gained a seat in the Senate on paper that type of outcome, independent of expectations, that type of outcome is pretty neutral. You gain control of a chamber completely, but you lose one and you lose your trifecta. Well, the thing is, it only becomes impressive when you start to look at it against expectations, right? Like the Democrats expected to lose the House by a big margin. They expected to lose the Senate. I mean, most Democratic pollsters I knew were preparing for an onslaught. And it was the reverse of 2020 when they were all preparing for a big blue wave. And for these things to not happen really just destroyed it and let everyone in the media was then writing columns about what happened. So what do people get in their papers and in their in their minds and in their news articles? They get like, oh, why the other party was stronger than we expected. And the narrative gets set and there you go again. And I think that's just, I think to a big degree, this is what sets a lot of 
things that people experience in both sports and politics. It's what do you expect to happen versus what actually happened? This has been another episode of Remember That Game. Please rate, review, subscribe, and check out more episodes.